So hi, this is Stu Holiday. Uh, welcome to the Focus Mind podcast. With me today is Crystal Palace and former England player Jeff Thomas. Jeff, do you want to say hi to everyone? Hello, everyone. Um, like you say, Jeff Thomas, former footballer, patron now of Cure Leukemia. And that is how we're coming into this conversation today and how Jeff and I have met. I've been helping Jeff and the team out with some of the sports psychology help and advice as they're about to go and undertake what's called GT, GT21. GT21 is a charity ride to try and raise over a million pounds for cure leukemia that is taking on every stage of the Tour de France a few days before the actual riders do it this summer. This isn't the first time you've done this, is it, Jeff? This will be my fifth, fifth time. Uh, the first time I did it was 2005, and it was really a case of trying to find something that would get people's attention because I was in a position of wanting to say thank you to the, the doctors and nurses and all the great people that really saved my life. Yeah. So we'll, we'll come to Jeff's own personal story with leukemia in a bit, but I wanted to start really by going back to the beginning. And we were just joking beforehand around the fact that I didn't realize he was born not far from where I used to live in Manchester in uh, the area of Russia. Uh, I didn't even know he was a Man City fan, but you know, we, we, we can get past that. Congratulations <laughs> on winning the league. Um, but you, you actually started, <laughs> you started out at, was it Rochdale? Was that the first club you're at? Yeah. Um, when I, I've got to be honest, we moved away from Manchester when I was seven mm-hmm. um, to a place called Littleborough. So, yeah, it was literally a stone's throw away from Main Road, the old city ground. But um, <clears throat> my dad thought it was best to get out of Manchester and because uh, I had a sister who was four years older than me mm-hmm. and wanted to, I don't know, get into a, a better schools. And we went out to this place, a little village. Yeah, and it all sort of, my life started there, really. But, yeah, as you say, the the blue side of me was developed in the first seven years. (laughs) I know Littleborough very well. Beautiful small town on the edge of Manchester, towards Hebden Bridge, with a big uh, reservoir uh, there, isn't there? Yeah, there's uh, Olyworth Lake as well. You know, there's, there's some... Yeah, I look back at it and it's, it's, it's nice to go back, but I like <laughs> just spending a couple of days there, you know, because uh, I find that, that the, the Pennine's a little bit bleak to what I'm used to now. So, yeah, all the family is still all around there. My mum's still up there and my sister and everything. So, yeah, obviously with what's been going on, not being able to get back there for quite a while. Mm. And going back to your particular story, getting into football, you were training. Tra- did you train as an electrician? Were you working as one? <clears throat> yeah, I had various jobs when I first left school because my dad was so keen that I got a trade. Mm-hmm. And first, I was a lift engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, a neighbour was in that business and gave me a job as an apprentice. And then that's where I found out I didn't like heights. <laughs> so I didn't, la- <laughs> I didn't last too long doing that. And then... Yeah, and it was through cricket. I would, used to love playing cricket, and one of the directors of Littleborough Cricket Club uh, was involved with a, a company in Rochdale. And I got an apprenticeship being an electrician, so I did that for three years. Mm-hmm. And it was a four-year course, but then football came knocking. With uh, it, At first, I was playing part-time football at Rochdale, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have a contract as such. I just had a contract to say that I was allowed to play for them. There was no money being passed over. Mm-hmm. So I, that was my first experience of you know, playing in a professional game. And I found, I found myself in a dressing room with some of my <clears throat> boyhood heroes. It was uh, Mike Doyle from Man City, mm-hmm. uh, who was a part of a great side back then. And also from the United side of Manchester, there were the Greenough brothers. Right, uh, yeah. Jimmy was manager at the time and Brian was uh, playing fullback. So, yeah, nice little uh, intro into the game. But, yeah, it only lasted about 10 games at Rochdale before moving on to crew. Yeah, so working under the very famous Dario Grady and you, you, you sort of made it establish yourself in that team. Was Neil Critchley there when you were um, playing? Neil, is he the coach? Uh, he was playing with uh, Rob Jones at the time around that era, and he's now the Blackpool manager. He was my um, head coach at Liverpool. He's the 23s manager. Oh, right. No, I, I don't think he was. I mean, it, it was really probably the start of crew not having to uh, reapply for uh, uh, to get back into the league because he always finished in the bottom three. Mm-hmm. And Dario brought in some young players like David Platt, who probably had his time at Man United as an apprentice and just couldn't make the first team because of players like Mark Hughes ahead of him. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a number of players that we seemed to, <coughs> excuse me, uh, join the club at the same time. And uh, yeah, it was a start of probably the conveyor belt of sort of young players coming out of crew. Mm. But then... Um... The uh, as, a, as a tough tackling young midfielder as you were, uh, Crystal Palace came knocking. Yeah, uh, I, had a, I actually had a trial at um, Everton, right under uh, Howard Kendall, and there was a few other clubs looking. Liverpool were looking as well, and it, it was yeah, I was on the verge of a move, and then yeah, got on well with Dario and I put my trust in Dario at the time uh, regarding my football career and. He just said it probably was too big a jump mm-hmm. for me because I come into the game late as a 18, 19 year old. He said you need more education in the game. So this Crystal Palace that are in the, the league below the top flight mm-hmm. might be a perfect move for you. And yeah, it proved to be that that was the case. Yeah. So you won promotion and uh, got into the Premier League and uh, you were captain in the FA Cup final 1990 against United. Um, yes. <laughs> subsequent, we'll, we'll skirt over that for now. Um, yeah. Then subsequently as well, through playing at Palace, you uh, you got your nine England caps. Yeah, uh, there was quite a number of um, players from Crystal Palace that achieved that. Ian Wright, John Salako, Nigel Martin, Andy Gray got a cap as well. So, yeah, from being a, a, a second-rate team, uh, we we blossomed into. A bit of a force, really. Uh, finishing third in the top flight really sort of cemented that. And it, the club wasn't big enough to keep those sort of characters together. Unfortunately, you know, the bigger club started poaching the players. So it, it sadly sort of disbanded and that era sort of dwindled away. Mm. So, yeah, um, that, that's sort of an interesting point because you've come from... You know, Rochdale up at Scotland and that tight little ground where 
Yeah, you know, probably visiting teams didn't like it. You've made it all the way to the Premier League. And I just wonder what the what my, my MO is all about, this mental side of performance. And you, you came the long way round to the professional career. I just wonder from your perspective, if you reflect on it, what, what do you think it took mentally for you to kind of build your career up to get to that level? Like if you were advising another young player coming through now, from your experience, what would you say you developed in your mentality that would help them in their game? Uh, the first thing you need self-belief. Uh, I think there's no point walking into a dressing room and feeling that you shouldn't belong. Mm. Um, and then just having that confidence in yourself to strive to get better. And I always... Uh, listen to everybody and not take everything on board because everybody's got different opinions, but listen to everybody because when you're a young player, you just need to be a sponge and take all that information and experiences from all the pros, from your coaches, from your managers, and just try and learn. But the most thing is, you know, I was always, um, I remember going into, even at crew, remember a, 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 an established player there, more or less, telling me that, you know, I'm not sure you're going to make it. And I said, listen, just uh, let's see who's in a, a, a better situation in two years' time. And that, that was my frame of mind. I just felt, you know, I, I've done the hard graft of getting up early and doing the work on the tools and everything as, as an apprentice electrician. This was, it was fun for me, but it was serious. I needed to make it work mm. and just... Um, yeah, and it's just having that commitment and that drive, that inner drive to keep pushing. And again, you, I was never the most skillful of players, but I knew that I had something that people were interested in uh, having a part of their team. So you just you have to sort of take that that in and just keep that, you know, that inner belief all the way through your career. You need that because as soon as that goes, like you you start that slippery slope of. Uh, Starting asking yourself questions, too many questions in your head, and that's, you know, like you know more than anybody. As soon as you have them sort of negative thoughts in your head, your performances soon disappear. Yeah, because when you, when you left Palace, you had you, you had a few different clubs, and sadly, it seems from what I understand, injuries kind of began to take the toll a bit. And I've worked with a lot of injured athletes who, you know, like we're trying to work on their mindset. Did that kind of determination that served you in the early part of your career help in the latter part when you had those kind of setbacks? Yeah, um, I was, I'd just gone to Wolves and it was like my career was sort of got a boost. You know, I was at Crystal Palace for six, seven years and done ever so well and it just, that ended in relegation and it, so it ended on the downer. Hmm. Uh, the year before um, Blackburn came in uh, with a three million pound bid to take me away to Blackburn with Alan Shearer just signed mm. and everybody else from Palace had gone but me and Steve Coppel spoke to each other Steve was adamant I wasn't going so and I, they bought me for 50,000 pounds so I had a year of sort of playing in a side that was being relegated mm. um, and watching Blackburn do what they did so and then finish that season so disappointed that we, we lost that hybrid uh, game thrown out. 
Wolves was like a fresh start for me. It right. was like starting my career again. And I started there so well, scoring a few goals and the team was doing well. And then just got a serious injury at Sunderland. And that injury was probably the first serious setback I'd had in my career. Mm. And that, I have to really sort of give credit to the the physios. Uh, they were the ones that kept me going in that time because it was new experience. I didn't like sitting in the in the dressing room uh, watching the players go out. But I still knew I had a role to play. I was captain of the side. I still had a role to play, keeping these guys going and motivating them. And well, it's, it's tough. It, it is a the hardest part of being a footballer is when you you sat on a treatment couch. Yeah, I mean I've uh, been involved at Liverpool, as you know, on the academy side, and also know of uh, other people working in the game. And these days, uh, every every squad has a sports psychologist involved, as well as all the sports science. And it's probably quite a world away from certainly where you started. Um, but yeah. I, I do say that the physio is is the is the crucial link, really. Um, that they have to be sort of almost mini psychologists uh, supporting the players who are, you know, vulnerable and on the table, potentially in situations like you had with, you know, injuries and, you know, the mood kind of hitting the floor because they're not playing and they can't see when they're going to come back from that injury. Um, but, you know, you, 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 got, you got past that serious injury and then did you, feel, did you feel refreshed and ready to go again at that point? Um. The, the injury I had was a crucial injury and it, it it took me a year to find out the operation wasn't a success. Right. So I had to have it stripped out and done again. So I was out for nearly two and a half years in my Wolves career there and it was frustrating. And when I was trying to get back, I knew my knee wasn't flexible enough to play professional football. Mm. So having to go through it again, it was a big challenge mentally more than anything. But again, I just, felt this is my only opportunity. That's what I kept on going back to is, you know, it, this is something I enjoy doing. So I have to give it the best opportunity of getting myself back to good shape to play football. So I trained harder in the gym. I, I became from, I was a skinny kid all the way through my career. And there was a, a fellow, a teammate, uh, Tony Daly. Yeah. Who, Tony from Aston Villa. Got the same injury, both had cruciate operations. And we turned into just guys who were pushing weights every day. And our, our chests were massive. We both had skinny legs. We forgot about our legs for a couple of months. And we were just um, uh, challenging each other. And it was just a way of getting by. It was just yeah. a, and it was uh, and so just waiting for the players to come back into the dressing room and have that, that team banter. And that kept you going. And then you go out for your afternoon session and me and Tony used to hit the gym hard and boxing and things like that. Or anything to keep us out of mischief most of the time, but also feel like we're moving forward with our fitness level. So as soon as we were good enough to get out onto the pitch running again, it was like a release, but you've got that little fear factor that you're not strong enough. But um, that's when you have to put your trust in other people and Thankfully, at the time, we had some really good physios at Wolves that uh, got us both back playing. Awesome. And it seems to be a thread that's then continued in your life. Like, not you know, you, you're not playing football now, you're retired, um, but you, you've stayed fit 
Um, I mean, we'll come to the leukemia part, but, you know, you were saying before we got on the call, you built a gym in your garage and, you know, you, you seem to genuinely love, you know, doing exercise, keeping fit. It, it's, it's, it was there before um, yeah. in, any illness. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't like the, 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 the feeling of clothes not fitting. <laughs> it's, it is soon as that you know that your jeans uh you you ask your your missus have, have, have they shrunk or you know <laughs> then you realize no they haven't and yeah and he's i don't know he's just been that all the time i just i am conscious about um my size and my fitness levels i, I like being able to feel fit i like the 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 energy it gives you as well you know and uh and it's been proven that it is great for mind and body, you know, to keep. It's probably the first thing I'd say now after everything I've been through is is you're in control of yourself. And taking control of yourself uh, physically and mentally is probably the most important thing. And and you're in control of that. So if you if you keep telling yourself that, keep reminding yourself of that every day uh, when you feel like you, you don't want to do anything and you, you start thinking back to when you couldn't get your jeans on or your shirt on and the, the buttons are a little bit stretched then yeah it motivates you to to look after yourself and and my god you had to do that uh when you retired because it wasn't long after you'd retired that you got leukemia right yeah it was only a matter, probably just under a year mm-hmm. um but what, even in what, that what time you, I'd, I'd come out what, of football and the I, I, I was just going to ask you what what did you have planned when you'd finished your career before you um you know like before yeah I just uh, when I was injured at Wolves at the age of twenty eight uh, I would I panicked really and I had enough money in the in the pot to invest into something that I thought might keep me going after football mm-hmm. so I invested in retail shops right. and it, they were established business well I thought they were well run. And they've been there for a long time. And it was only after I came out of football at the age of 37 that I knew that wasn't the case pretty quickly. So that year was taken up with me and Julie, my wife, get taking control ourselves of these retail shops and turning them around in some respects, paying a few bills that weren't being paid. And bizarrely, we started to enjoy it right near the point where I was diagnosed with uh, the illness but um it was i just took it as a new challenge i wanted to make a success with that and then hopefully go back into football that was a plan mm. but um yeah uh, something life changed you, that. yeah life gave you a different challenge that you had to face right <laughs> that is true yeah so i mean as much as you can how did you can you explain how you found out that you'd got blood cancer yeah i i like a lot of people in my situation, I was ignoring so many signals and signs that something's not right, but I wasn't feeling particularly too ill. Mm. I was having night sweats. I'd have lumps in my stomach that had disappeared, so I thought nothing of them. Um, and it was only, a, it was actually a, a buying trip. I went to Italy and I, was, I took out a guy who was, actually the owner of um, a big complex. It's called the Mailbox in Birmingham. Yep. And he was one of the owners, one of two. 
and we, we, we had ideas of opening more shops together um, inside there. And so we, I took him to see all these big fashion houses and talked to, to many people. And while we were having the meetings, it was hot. It was obviously hot over the middle of uh, summer. And I started to feel really fatigued and tired. And I was looking at my business partner and he, he looked fine. And then we got taken off and we were wined and dined and then we, we got sent to a spa and we both had a, um, a massage. And I remember, because I'm from the world of sport, I wanted a lymphatic massage to get rid of all the toxins mm. um, that we just uh, probably had at lunchtime. And that, that evening, I had the worst pain in my stomach. And what I found out, all the toxins had gone into my spleen. Ooh. They've directed everything into and it. And it's gone to about, I got told about eight times the size it should be. So I was pushing on my stomach like a, I thought it was a big sponge. Mm. And I was curled up uh, in pain, thinking I needed to ring somebody. But I woke up in the morning. I fell asleep uh, watching Gladiator on my laptop. <laughs> it took inspiration from the, the big man <laughs> and uh, just woke up in the morning the pain had gone right. and so I ignored it but it's only when I went back home and told Julie that she made me an appointment at the GP the next day mm. went at 9 o'clock had a few tests and then just as I was walking out he said Let, I just want to clear something up let's have a blood test uh, just to make sure of something and he didn't say anything. I walked out thinking nothing more and said, we normally get the test back in about three or four weeks. Um, so, okay. And then four hours later, I got that dreaded phone call. So that really changed everything. And you just didn't see it coming at all? No, no, no idea? Not at all. I remember the day before as well, I, we're jokingly talking about uh, insurance and we're talking about the business and we're saying we needed probably a, another investment into the business to make certain things work. And I was going, have we got critical illness, haven't we? I was saying, it, I was pushing my stomach where this lump was. I said, if this is cancer, then we, we could get a bit of money from that. So yeah, we were joking about it. And yeah, it was, <laughs> my message reminds me of that conversation quite often. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And, I mean, luckily you can joke about it because you're still here. But you know, it wasn't a short spell that you were out with it. It was it was a long long journey for you, right? Yeah, it, it very quickly it becomes brutally honest. What's ahead of you? The, the, the my professor Charlie Craddock. Um, he he has to be honest. You know, at first he told me with my blood counts, I only had probably three months the way I was with the white blood cells attacking my immune system and not allowing it to work properly. So, but after intensive chemotherapy and going on the machine and washing my blood out, mm. you know, it, it got me back to another stage that it looked like I had three years to, to live. And to me, that was a bonus. That was from that first initial place of being told three months was like a, I was in a real dark place. And going back 10 years from that, my dad had died of cancer and he, he lasted only six weeks from being diagnosed. So that was running through my mind. I had a daughters of 
10 and 7 and all I could think of was was them and my wife nothing else and and that's taught me an awful lot you know what you think of when you're in that position what's important and everything else dis- disappears yeah uh, but that moment I got told I was I had three years to live was like it put me in the best place I've ever been in because life you always worry about certain things and that seems to control how your your day ahead of you sort of um if you're in a good mood or a bad mood but nothing else mattered so I was in a good mood all the time mm. I was like looking at things and experiencing that are there naturally that I've never seen it opens your eyes up to so many different things mm. so in this period I was <laughs> The only chance of beating this was to find a stem cell match so I could have a transplant. And I've got one sibling in my sister who was a nurse. And she, was, she wasn't she was a perfect match, but they said they could, they could make it work uh, if I wanted to go for it, take the risk. And we decided to go for it. So we made a, me the, and the girls, we made a bucket list. We asked them what they wanted to do. We went to Paris Disneyland. We did various things. We went down to Cornwall, went on the beaches down there, did various things. And I felt I had a couple of months of doing this before going into a an isolation into a room by myself for six weeks. And you don't know if you're going to come out because there's so many stories. The internet's great, but it's not great when you're looking for information of stories of what people have, have been through, what you're about to go through. So... Yeah, uh, so I went into that room just after Christmas. We'd enjoyed Christmas away for the first time. Mm. And I came back a little bit heavier mm. on on advice from the doctors because yeah. they said you're going to obviously lose weight drastically through the treatment. So I did a good job there. I came back about 14 and a half stone, 15 stone. Wow. Never been that weight. Yeah. And yeah, I went into the unit January and that's where it all started. You know, Miss, like I mentioned, my sister's a nurse, and she was the, the probably the the one who was more worried about anything because she, for me, she was giving me a chance of life, but to her, she was potentially going to kill me. Right. So it was. Uh, I I had a little battle with her for a little while, and I only found out probably five years later that she was nearly. So she she had time off work uh, with depression and uh, with anxiety. I only found out later she was ringing Charlie up saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. So it's, it was tough on her. And, but yeah, she saved my life. So hmm. presents are pretty special. Every time her birthday and Christmas comes around, she's always uh, ready for uh, something nice. <laughs> so how, how long was it from that treatment to when you got the all clear um, that you, you uh, leukemia? I, yeah, I had the transplant. January 2004, and I went into remission uh, February 2005, just over 12 months. Mm. So it was a slow process coming back. You you actually go in. I've just been away, like I say. I went in looking healthy. You feel like a bit of a fraud. Mm. But when they they bombard you with total body radiation and then chemotherapy, you you do look like a, a... what we call a typical cancer patient. Mm. You know, you lose all your colour, you turn green. And you, you just, I went down to about 11 stone, 
very quickly. I lost all my hair. Mm. And any images that you can imagine of a cancer patient, yeah, we all, we all look the same. And so it was steadily coming back from that. Your immune system slowly goes up. I was allowed out one day of the six weeks, five weeks I was in isolation because mm. it was Valentine's Day. Charlie let me out for a day. And I don't think the missus was that impressed because I just fell asleep in bed all day. And then just went back at night time. And then it, but it was like little things like that. Uh, it, it was like little signals that things are improving. Yeah. And the immune system sort of came back. And like I say, it took over a year. But it's, you, you do feel poorly for the first couple of months. But then you start getting really more positives as, as you your body feels like it can do more and more, go out for walks and actually meet people. And did that mindset that we we're talking about that had driven you on at that point, got you through injuries, etc. was that kind of like, were you able to tap into that to build your strength back up on the other side? Yeah, because I think looking back with injuries, I think if you start looking at too far ahead, I think you depress yourself, and, and that's what he taught me. I think with football, it's you're looking for licking, little improvements day in, day out, more flex, flexibility in your knee from the operation. You're looking for just that day where the physio can actually get your heel to your backside again, you, and that's really done it, you know. And it, you're looking for little signs that things are getting back to normal, and that's what you're doing when I was coming back from the illness. I was looking for little signs that. You know, I, I could walk further when I was going for walks. I, I felt more energised and all that sort of thing. And I wasn't as tired, you know, and I was putting on weight. And, yeah, so, yeah, they're definitely little. Rather than looking, I want to get back fully fit again, just having little sort of positives rather than having that dream of being normal, as whatever normal is, getting back to some sort of, sense of normality again right and i mean then you go from that fitness rebuild um and very quickly you're planning to ride um the tour de france route <laughs> yeah because i i had this profile still from football the world of football that 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 world was still interested in my story mm. so i had he's a good friend now neil ashton was working for the sunday people at the time and he was following my story, he did a piece before I went in for treatment. And he was coming, he came to do a follow-up story to see what, what's next. So he, he more or less, probably a couple of days after I went into remission, he came up to do the piece. And it was, it was this question saying, what now? And I just said, well, I, I've got a lot of people to say thank you to. And I want to do that by trying to raise awareness and money for um, what Charlie wants and Charlie the professor my he was seen as a maverick by then he, he's got all these grand ideas which didn't seem that difficult for me to understand you know I thought it might be blinded by science but it was a simple thing a simple vision that he he thought could change the world of uh, survival rates in people with blood cancer mm. so I just wanted to, him to fulfill his, that vision really and whatever I could do to help that then the only thing I, I could think of was raising awareness and money for him mm. and it was it was Neil's chuck away comment uh, why not do something 
that's going to get people to really listen and do something like the Tour de France. Because he knew my knees were were shot from the world of football. I couldn't run. I couldn't do these uh, huge walks that Ian Botham was taking on. And so the bike was probably my only option of doing something. So I said to him, give me a couple of days. And he said, I'll do it with you. And I've got a couple of mates that I've said that already. And they were four journalists. So I just thought, why not? Uh, two, two nights of probably not sleeping too well, thinking about it and not really understanding what the challenge was. I knew it was three weeks away in France, but apart from that, I didn't even have a bike then. I didn't. And yeah, that was just it. That was the start. And I went out on my first ride, did six miles and felt like death. Mm. I looked horrendous. My wife just tutted at me and just said, you know, what are you doing now? But yeah, it just, it just, it really gave me a, a, a new target of, of getting back to fitness and uh, yeah and that challenge in itself really was changed my life really in many ways but everything in the past year that you know before that changed my life uh, for for the better now looking back for sure yeah uh, you hear this from a lot of cancer survivors you know the the, 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 the whole perspective shifts dramatically well there there is a a young girl who was um, I met, she was about 16, 17 when she was first diagnosed with leukemia. And she fought it for about five years. And then eventually she, she beat it and she trained. She was in university at the time or just out in university at the time she was diagnosed. And she managed to finish her course and she chose to go into nursing and she ended up working on the ward she was treated on. It's a great story, but she said something great. She said, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but I'm glad it happened to me at such a young age. It's put me in such a uh, a different role to what she was on, Mm. you know, before the illness, and she feels more fulfilled and more confident with what she's doing. I think, yeah, she she hit it on the head. She's, uh, I think, a, a lot of people who have been through this sort of battle think the same way and, and with all that mental toughness does that help when it when it's getting painful on those long rides somewhere in rural France three, two weeks into the three <laughs> I think what I've, I've said this many times what gives me the the, the strength and the, the motivation is is my journey of meeting people who have, haven't made it and I I take them with me some well on all the challenges they're, they're, they're always uh, they're always on my shoulder so when I'm having a bad day trying to get up a mountain they're, they're there you know I just think of them you know that they'd love to this opportunity doing such a crazy thing mm. and yeah I, I, I think about them now when I'm having a bit of a down day mm-hmm. you know I just think oh, remind myself about what could have been yeah. so easily could have been and just yeah, it, yeah. That's how I, I I survived the big days in the mountain. <laughs> and you you, you know, haven't just done it once. You've done it. Do you say five times? The the, the the next time will be the fifth. Yeah, allegedly yeah, the, allegedly the last time. But I did read somewhere that you've had a a last time before. Yeah, and bizarrely, I was on a. a a Zoom meeting a couple of weeks ago with, or could be 
a big sort of um, partner to the charity. And his, his closing comment was, I might do the tour next year if you do it. And so <laughs> I just, I, I rolled my eyes and yeah, I just thought if, if, if he comes on board with his business and um, he plows a lot of money into the course and maybe there might be enough motivation to go again. <laughs> we'll see. That's an Elvis you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I am aiming this to be the last one because we did, I, in 2017, I thought that was the last one because we did the, the three grand tours back to back. And there was a group of us that did that. And that really stretched me in every direction, physically and mentally, more mentally, I think. Mm. I, I didn't want to see a bike again after I got off in, in uh, where was it? It would be Spain, mm. last one. And uh, yeah, it just, yeah, I, I, I don't mind being away from the family. Sure. And, and knowing that, in my mind, this is the last one. I can justify this for the three weeks again, away from the family. I can, you know, and it's, obviously it's for a great cause and we're, we're aiming to raise over a million pounds. So there's so much motivation there. Uh, but yeah, that, that's always been my, my, in my mind that I don't want to keep doing this. I want to find a different way of getting people to come on board, you know, and, and what's happening at the moment, there's, bigger organisations that are looking at us now as a charity and coming on as partners and all that. So, yeah, I'd like to see that happen a lot more. So it saves me getting out on a bike as many times. <laughs> yeah, because I think, I mean, the point you're making there about COVID is that sadly, um, as I've seen that Q Leukemia's funding's gone down and your ride's going to make a really big difference um, because it's going to boost up the the money that they they need isn't it yeah i think like any charities any organization has, has taken a hit last year and i think uh there is obviously a, a massive hole there and we've just taken on a financial commitment to raising money for a clinical trial network so we're actually funding clinical research nurses that allow the wealth of knowledge built up in um, science labs to get out there to patients and it is the patients will tell you it delivers hope to these people so in this network that we set up we can deliver the latest treatments and and we've it's been proven with covid if you, you get the right infrastructure which the nhs has and you get a, enough a population to do clinical trials and you can find answers really quickly and that's what we've been advocating for so many years. And it's been proven to the masses through COVID that clinical trials are the way forward. So rather than investing millions and millions of pounds into pure science, which we'll carry on anyway, let's have a bit more into the clinical uh, translation of all that science to benefit patients rather than keeping it locked away. So that's our aim. And that's a simple vision of Charlie back in 2005. Wow. And uh, we built that infrastructure now, and it's uh, it's up to us to fund it, really. And it's as simple as that. We will accelerate survival rates from this, from what we're doing. Cool. 
Are, are you uh, are you feeling now like it's not that far away? That's about forty days. Are you feeling that um, you you you're mentally and physically ready, um, or will be at the start? You know, Stu, I'm, I've still not thought about it in any depth. Uh, that's my way of coping with things. I, uh, I know if things are happening, I know we've got the right people in, in the right places to deliver what we want. Mm-hmm. And from experience, I know that the people that we have got are, are perfect um, for the sort of characters we've, we've got for the ride as well. So I'm comfortable with that. And apart from that, you know, I've not thought about it. Uh, I don't look at the stages. I know somebody's mentioned we've got Von 2 twice in a day. Yeah. up and down both sides uh, and that, that's about it you know I know that we're going out on the 17th of June starting a week before the, the, the pros so that's all I'll be sorting out is my how I get there and how I get back I know in between I've got to do it so and look after the, the, everybody else that's taking part it's such a great venture and it was such a privilege to talk to the team and uh, find out some of the characters and try and help a little bit uh, the other week when we when we all talked. There's a really good kind of natured, you know, there's a, there's a good team chemistry there, I think. so. Yeah, and uh, over three weeks, it will be tested. And from experience, you know, you, you, everybody gets broken down over that period down to... Uh, the bare bones, really, physically and mentally. The, the people will be in bits, and people will be saying things probably that they wouldn't have said in the first week, you know. And we're we're aware of that, and we've just got to cope with all that because there are so many different personalities. Uh, you you saw a, a good number of them there the other week, but there are some big characters, and it's it's. It's going to be a challenge, but it is, it's a challenge that's worth taking on because they're raising such a, a great amount of money for the course. So that, that is always a, the main thing and main motivation is delivering a good event. They fulfil doing something, but also we, it's three weeks where they can get really involved with the charity and hear from back home what difference it's making. Awesome. Awesome. Well, on that note, I'll uh, I'll just quickly tell listeners that um, if you're listening to this and you're a cyclist uh, and you're, you're jealous of uh, putting mind and body through uh, what Jeff and his team are, there is the option for uh, anyone who wants to, to ride one stage worth of riding, 283 kilometres. Um, have you got the i can put i can supply the details in the show notes um but if they just go to what's the website jeff it's uh tour21.co.uk it's got all the information there about the riders the tour and also what you're talking about this strava challenge strava have come on board where you can get involved with the team by helping them raise this uh, million pound target by doing like you say it's the longest stage of the tour and you'll be replicating that. You can do it in one day or you can do it over three weeks, whatever it takes, you know, what. And you don't have to do, it's on the bike, you can do it running, you can do press-ups and that number, whatever. Mm. So it's, there's any challenge that you want to take, take on, but to feel a part of the team. 
Yeah. So there you go. In in this uh, newly distributed world we live in, post COVID, uh, you can still be there. Uh, and will people be able to track your movements? What, what can people see where you're moving around on the website? Yeah, we. I started a meeting with uh, NBC. They they cover it in America, and they're going to film uh, a number of clips, ten minute episodes through the tour. Uh, we've got a camera crew going out, so social media they'll be in charge of that. So you'll be able to see more or less uh, daily sort of clips coming back. Mm-hmm. of what the day was like and you can see the characters and you I'm sure there'll be plenty of uh, interest for uh, people to see what it you know what the challenge is all about because we've got a, a three-year partnership with ASO the guys who put on the tour and that relationship is just getting stronger and stronger so we want to make this year a great success but we want next year to be even better Mm-hmm. So this is going to really be an opportunity of highlighting what it's all about. Great stuff. So uh, that's tour21.co.uk if any listeners want to kind of find out more. And just for now, um, I'll uh, leave you there, Jeff. But many thanks for your time today and your story. <laughs> I didn't even know the half of it and I thought I knew quite a lot. So uh, that, that spirit and that uh, mental strength that uh, you've shown and talked about it it will serve you well i think when it comes to the big one cheers thanks again (laughs) yeah